this is one of the most important passages of Scripture in all the Bible and in all of the Christian faith. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Welcome this morning. Let's grab a seat and let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Welcome this morning. If you need a Bible, will you go ahead and throw your hand up? Everyone here needs a Bible. So grab your Bibles and open to Galatians 2. We've got a hand up here in the front, guys, if we could grab a Bible and bring it up here to the front. Anybody else need a Bible? If you guys uh, have a smartphone, you can also turn to the Bible app and look up events. And every week we have the notes and quotes. You can follow along, take your own notes. But Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning, and we're going to be starting in verse 15. So look at Galatians 2, 15. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Galatians 2, 15 says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time of study, that you'd be glorified. Lord, we ask that you would communicate by your Holy Spirit what we are to learn today. And there's individual lives and and walks with you. And and some of us understand this concept of justification by faith. And some of us, this is brand new. And so, Lord, would you allow every single one of us to have ears that would hear. Lord, would you communicate to us in a way that allows us to understand the depth of of this doctrine, Lord, because there's so much to learn, there's so much uh, to really grasp here, but Lord, uh, it should be uh, easy enough that we can walk away in Christ to um, understand, but Lord, there's so much depth here, so please communicate to us, help us, we need your help, Lord. And Lord, we acknowledge that um, you are the Lord of this church, and so we pray your blessing on the tithes and offerings today as we give as unto you. We thank you for taking care of this church for building and blessing this community, and we ask that you'd continue to do that. So have favor upon us, Lord. We're continuing to pray for a new space, Lord, a, a space for lease somewhere in this area. And so we together ask, Lord, that you would open that door. Even this week, there would be um, some, some real estate, a building, a facility that would be um, good for us to move into in this, this next season. And so, Lord, we just ask all of this in Jesus' name, and we pray, Lord, that today um, you would be glorified in this church and in every pulpit in this community. God, many are turning away from the faith. Many churches are going apostate and they're turning away from the truth of Scripture. Lord, would you bring them back? Would you bring this community back to Jesus? And Lord, allow the teaching of your word to happen not only in this pulpit, but around this community. We ask it for Christ's sake and for the glory of God among us. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. The DIY or do-it-yourself mentality. It must be an American thing, DIY, do it yourself. Chances are you guys have Googled DIY something. And you know who you are, wives, you can elbow your husband now, I give you permission. This is that moment where, yeah, you can kind of acknowledge that was you, DIY. I've seen on Google DIY everything from um, taxes, 
do-it-yourself taxes to oil changing, <laughs> be careful, uh, to home improvements is my favorite, do-it-yourself electrical, um, uh, pest control, and even weddings, DIY weddings. And with all of this advice out there, it seems like we no longer need an expert. We are the expert. We can just do it ourselves. This actually came to a head a few years ago. Home Depot had on its shelf for decades, since 1970, they had a shelf on, uh, they had a book on their shelf on do-it-yourself electrical, and it actually was wrong. And people were getting electrocuted by following the DIY, uh, you know, communication. Uh, and so we are a do-it-yourself culture. Some of us are smart enough to hire the professionals, but some of us are like, oh, I can do it myself. You gotta love that human nature. But one of the fundamental problems in the church today is by taking that concept, I can do it myself, and applying that to salvation, applying that to sanctification. And here's what it looks like. It looks like this. I don't need anyone to help me. I can do this myself. I can work myself to heaven, and I can have just good works, and God will see my good works, and he'll say, you know what? You've got some bad works, but you've got good works, and so I'll put those on a scale, and as long as your good works outweigh your bad works, well, then you have to have a, a spot in heaven. And so this is a major issue in the church today, but not only today, it was, a, it was an issue in the church back in the 1500s. One person said this, and I love this quote, to kind of open this section of scripture. They said, the deepest heresy of all, which corrupts churches, it leavens creeds with folly, and swells our human hearts with pride, is this, salvation by works. See, the problem, church, is that the gospel is not be a good person, it's not do better and try harder. It's not go be nice to your neighbor. The gospel says you and I are dead, that we're lost, that we're incapable of saving ourselves. And so your attempts, my attempts at righteousness now become self-righteousness, and that's actually a great offense to a holy God. And because of that, you and I stand condemned. We do not believe as Christians in DIY soteriology, which is a fancy way of saying salvation. We don't believe in that. The gospel tells me that I'm saved by grace through faith and that Christ's imputed righteousness to me has been placed in my account without accounting for my good works or my ability or my worth. It's all by his grace and I receive this by faith alone. This is incredible good news. But there is some bad news. Uh, and the bad news is that you can just go and leave today and just be a better person. That's not good news, church. That's actually bad news. And the Catholics would argue and say today, no, we believe also with you guys in justification by faith alone. Many Catholics would say that. Yeah, we believe in that as well. But see, the problem is we're not using the same words. So when we as Protestants talk about Christ righteousness, what are we saying? We're saying that it's been imputed to us. Whereas the informed Catholic would say, well, no, it's infused in us. Uh, and so what that means is that, listen up, the Catholic would say, that means that the believer must cooperate with and assent to the gracious work that God uh, is doing. And only to the extent that Christ's righteousness inheres within the believer, only to that extent will God declare that person justified. Do you see the difference? You have to do something, and then God says, okay, now, now you're justified. So Protestants disagree, and we point to the critical difference between infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. The Protestant Reformation had a declaration known as sola fide, and that just simply means faith alone. And faith alone was one of the most controversial aspects of the Protestant Reformation, and it's still a very controversial topic today. But this was the hinge on which the Reformation actually built their theological movement. So this idea of faith alone, or sola fide, uh, it affirms that you are justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And that is accomplished solely through Christ's own perfect act of obedience apart from us not on the basis of Christ's righteousness in us. And listen, that is glorious good news, amen? That is good news. That means you don't need to leave today and go, okay, well, that was a good sermon, so now I need to be obedient to everything I learned. And if I'm obedient, then God will be happy with me, and then God will bless me. You see, we've got it all wrong. Let me show you this video clip from an amazing documentary called American Gospel. Watch this. It is often called the plus religion because Catholicism teaches that you are saved by faith plus works, by grace plus merit, by Christ plus other mediators, 
according to scripture plus tradition and for the glory of God as well as the glory of Mary and other saints. When you look at the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, it is a salvation of works and sacraments. In the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, baptism cleanses an infant from original sin. And that is the sacrament of regeneration as well as justification. That it starts them off on this plan, on this track. Along the way, however, they can commit these small sins, venial sins, which plunges them back down. And heaven forbid they commit a mortal sin, which knocks them completely off the plan of salvation. And he must now receive sacraments. He must confess his sins to a priest, which is the sacrament of penance. And then he must be re-justified by doing good works, by doing penance. And once he is re-justified, then he must maintain his salvation through sacraments. And if, in the end, if they have enough people praying for them, and if they do enough time in purgatory, they might possibly get to heaven. How they get to heaven is based on what they do rather than what Christ has done. But the Bible teaches there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work has been done. He saves you totally, completely, perfectly. And even though, yes, we sin and can repent, the sacrifice of Christ has paid for those sins. And so there is assurance that he has saved you, he has plucked you out of the world, you're in the palm of his hand, and nobody can pluck you out of his hand. And so that's why the reformers cried the five solas, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Awesome, amen. Now, if you have not seen, you can clap for that, it's awesome. Um, if you've not seen that movie yet, spoiler, spoiler alert, the gospel is glorious. <laughs> so uh, it's good news. So check that out. And we're going to talk more about that at our Night of Reformation. But as we continue through our series in Galatians, last week we noted um, Paul's confrontation of Peter, who back in Acts chapter 10 previously had an opportunity to see Gentiles. A Gentile is simply those not born of Jewish descent. And he saw them brought into the family of God and adopted in and given the same privileges that a true son or daughter would be given. And so the Gentiles who repented and trusted Christ, listen, were given the same access as the Jew who repented and trusted Christ. And so um, in the midst of that, though, Peter had slipped up because of peer pressure, the fear of man. Remember, we talked about that last week and how Peter essentially was segregating himself and did not want to embrace the Gentiles. And so he was not acting in a manner worthy of the gospel. And even Paul's friend Barnabas was brought into that hypocrisy. And, and so the result was that, as we learned last week, the first section of chapter 2, that Paul confronts Peter. And you remember last week we talked about fight or flight and that whole psychology, and we kind of threw those out the window and said face. That's what we're to do as Christians. We're to face issues. And we learn how to confront legalism directly. Even this morning, there's a little inner legalist, a little inner attorney that's cropping up on your shoulder and whispering to you like, I'm not sure about that, and is putting up a fight against the gospel and is constantly bringing your sins before you. And so Paul is going to develop his argument that he possibly was arguing with Peter and Barnabas, uh, almost maybe giving us a flashback about that confrontation. And I can kind of see the screen pausing, and then Paul stepping out of the screen and addressing the audience and saying, this is what we talked about. And then he has kind of this monologue, and one word continues to drone through, verses 15 through 21, and it's the word justified. So for these remaining six verses in Galatians 2, we are given, listen, some of the most poignant and unforgettable verses to communicate what true salvation is and is not. Listen, these are, if this is your first Sunday or you're just visiting, you're fortunate enough to be here on a Sunday where we go verse by verse through Scripture, and this is one of the most important passages of Scripture in all the Bible and in all of the Christian faith. And if you miss this, then listen, you miss everything. But if you get this, then man, you may truly understand who Christ is and who we are in Him. So we're going to see four points this morning from this text. And I, I want to develop these points as we go through. And the second point's going to seem confusing, but you'll understand. Watch. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16 and how the law judges, but faith justifies. 
Then we're going to see in verses 17 and 18 how the law deepens, and you'll see what it deepens. It deepens our sin, but faith deadens. Faith deadens the impact of sin in our life. Thirdly, the law annihilates, but faith awakens. Verses 19 and 20, and then, well, the first half of 20, and then the second half of 20 and 21, we'll see how the law empties. It empties the cross of its power, but faith empowers the Christian to truly live the life of Christ. So that's where we're going today. Hopefully you're taking note. Let's look at the first idea here that the law judges, but faith justifies. Verse 15, Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay. Now to set this up, Paul is going to be drawing a distinction between two groups of people. Uh, You're going to note that he highlights we, so you might want to circle that word we, He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And then he says, but we're not Gentile sinners. (laughs) Now, at first glance, this seems a little rude. Like, wow, Paul, that is just so offensive. What are you, where are you going with this? Now, whenever you see the word sinner in this section, I want you to highlight it or circle it or underline it. Whenever you see the word sinner here, um, I want you to think less about doing sinful things. Like, oh man, those teenagers are sinners. Think less about that and more about someone who completely violates the Old Testament covenant. Picture someone who's outside of the law, who was never circumcised. They don't know there's a law. They're just completely outside of it. That's the concept that he's going for here. They're called sinners. But don't misunderstand. He's not using that as a derogatory term like we use it, like, oh, look at those sinners over there. That's not the idea. Uh, He's not saying we Jews are not sinful. He's just drawing a distinction between these two groups. The camp of the Jews who have the law and those who were born completely outside of the influence of the law, for example, sinners. So notice this in verse 16. He says again, Yet we, we know, even though we're born by birth as Jews, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, notice here, no one will be justified. The Jew, we, or them, the Gentile sinners. No one will be justified by the works of the law. So what he's saying is, in our camp, born under law, we, especially we, realize there's no way to be justified by holding to the law. It's by faith alone that one is justified, whether they're a Jew or not. Now, at the end of verse 16, he loosely quotes Psalm 143.2. And on the screen, here's Psalm 143.2. The psalmist said, Enter not into judgment with me, your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. The scriptures tell us over and over throughout the Old and New Testament that no one is righteous. No one, not a one. God's yardstick of holiness, of perfect standard. It doesn't matter if you get really close to that or you're way down here. No one will able to, is able to meet that perfect qualification. None of us are right with God in our default, uh, default fallen state. Another word that you'll see through this section uh, here, other than we and sinner, is what I mentioned earlier, that word justified. So if you have a pen for a minute, go ahead and circle, if you have your scripture journals, circle the word justified. It's, it's found four times in these verses. So let's figure out where it's at. There's one in verse 15, the word justified. Um, There are two in verse 16, justified. And there's one in verse 17, justified. Now, what does this word justified mean? A lot of us use this term like, I I was justified in that argument. And I was right. Okay, so the Greek word is dikaiao. So here's what this word means, this word justified. Levi, let's throw it on the screen. The word means to cause someone to be in a proper or right relation with someone else. Or it means to show to be right or righteous. Or if you take a picture of this, it's easier. To make free or liberate or set free or release from the control of. So to simplify this, the word justify simply means to declare someone to be righteous before God. To declare someone to be righteous before God. Even though you may not feel righteous... And you may look at your life this week and go, there's not a lot of righteousness there, yet God in Christ declares you righteous. So let's broaden this idea to the term justification. Here's another definition for you. Justification is the gracious act of God whereby he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to leave that up for a minute, and I want to walk through this definition. Okay, first of all, the gracious act of God. 
Uh, justification is not something you and I earn or deserve. It's something that is freely given according to God's grace. Um, secondly, notice that it's through this act that God declares a sinner righteous. And so this is literally the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is to declare someone guilty. So I look at you and I declare you as a judge, you are guilty of this crime. You have been condemned. When we're justified, though, it's more than just not guilty. So God's not just saying, not guilty. Now go out and you're not going to face the penalty of your crime. No, it's more than that. To be justified, it means more than just as if I'd never sinned, but it means just as if I lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. See, because of the propitiation, there's now a great exchange. Christ has exchanged our sin for his righteousness. So he got the worst end of the deal, I think. He received all of the sin, all of the condemnation, all the wrath of God, and you and I receive all of the blessings uh, and favor of being a son. That was what happens with justification. God declares all who are in Christ righteous. So in justification, God imputes, meaning he places Christ's righteousness into your righteous bank account. Uh, It's as if... Uh, you now are living the life that Christ lived. You guys, I don't know if you're getting this. Um, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, how many of you have teens? Anybody here have a teenager or had a teen? All right, I've, I have, um, <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, I had a teen. Woohoo! that time is over. <laughs> Grateful for those prayers. Um, we, have, uh, we have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old son and daughter, and they're both home this morning. We had a crazy weekend, some sick kids. So uh, they are about to turn 16 and 13, so you can definitely pray for our family. And um, we decided we wanted to, they're always asking for money to do this and that, and so we found out about this app, parents, this is a great app called Greenlight. And Greenlight is a card that works with Visa and MasterCard, and basically um, you can credit their account with your bank account. And so they have their own little debit card, and you can just kind of turn off the green light. So I turned it off for Wawa and 7-Eleven, and I turned it off for the mall. And so there's certain like establishments, they're not able to use that, but at school, that's fine. They can buy a lunch, whatever. Uh, but my point is the other day, the kids were saying, hey, our, our account is low. Our account is low, dad. Can you, can you activate it? Can you add some more money to our account? See, there was nothing they did special Uh, Just by being a son or daughter, the favor of the Father, I was able to credit their account. And that's kind of a picture of what what God has done in Christ. He's credited our account. We did nothing to deserve it. But now our righteous bank account has been uh, imputed by the righteousness of Christ. And so Martin Luther said about justification that if it's lost, if it's lost, then all true doctrine is lost. And you know what else is lost? The church. Martin Luther came across Romans chapter 1, and he read these words. He read, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther came to understand that when we trust Christ, we receive from God an alien righteousness, meaning a righteousness from someone else. It's the one that we have in Christ. And so Paul would explain it later in Romans 3, where he said this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's it's known throughout Scripture, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's not by works, it's by faith. So you follow me this morning? That we have been justified by faith. So the law judges you, but faith justifies you. You see the distinction? You cannot become justified through the law. Now, Let's look at our next section, how the law deepens. And you kind of were like, what does that mean? In fact, the girl who does our Bible app notes, she goes, Pastor, are you sure that you meant to say that faith deadens? What did you mean by that? And so let's look at this. Verse 17 says, but if, and, and this is some logic that Paul's going to go with, so stay with me. Okay, we've got to chew a little bit slower here, right? Some meals you eat quickly, we've got to eat a little slow. So notice verse 17. Paul says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... 
we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So the law deepens our understanding of sin. The law doesn't resolve sin, it deepens it. And so let's follow Paul's argument. It's a little confusing. Uh, Remember, he's sort of recapping his discussion with Peter. uh, And so think of this as Paul anticipating his argument, his opponent. Consider that he's answering his opponent. So remember, whenever we see the word sinner, it's referring to those who offended the Old Testament law. So on the screen, here's Paul's logic for a minute. You can hear Paul say this. Hey, we're not justified by the law, but faith alone. And then these Judaizers, these religious uh, people who said you have to be circumcised to be saved, they said, well, so does that mean we dismiss the law and live lawlessly? Wouldn't that mean that Christ has encouraged us to transgress the law? And so Paul's argument is, no, 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 never. But if I tried to go back and keep the law perfectly, I'm only going to fail. And we can't seek to be justified by keeping the law. We're justified by faith alone. We would not understand what sin was if we didn't have the law. And so Paul is saying, if we were trying to be justified by Christ and then we go back and try to follow the law, that's just going to prove that we've been outside of the law. And so we're trying to rebuild something we tore down. That just proves that we're a sinner. The law doesn't add anything to us except to show us that we're a sinner. We mentioned this last week, but the law is like a mirror. We look in the mirror and we see some of us like, hmm, wow, we need, there's some work to do there. <laughs> we, got, we have some improvements to do. Uh, we need to shave. But the mirror does not reach out and shave us. It only reveals uh, where we lack. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Um, if we were to speed on the freeway and we're just going along at our pace and all of a sudden we see red and blue lights behind us, uh, we would immediately do one of two things. We'd immediately look at the speedometer to see how fast we were going or, right, guilty, or we would scan the side of the road to look for a sign to confirm what the law was. In other words, until we see the law, until we know, knew we offended it, uh, we had no idea we were even breaking it. Uh, and if it turns out you were going 115 in the 70, you're going to definitely get a ticket. You're definitely going to pay the price. You see, if it weren't for the law, we wouldn't understand what sin was. Romans 7, 7, Paul puts it this way. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I heartily believe that Adam and Eve in the garden were told, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if I stood in for Adam, I would have said, which tree was that again? Oh, that tree. I'm not supposed to eat of that. Can I go pet the tree? Can I hang out near the tree? That's my sinful nature. That's what Adam would have done. See, the law deepens our understanding of sin before a holy God because it communicates to us what obedience and thus what transgression is, and thus it only deepens our guilt. It only deepens our guilt. But faith, in contrast, deadens the power of sin in our life. Faith renders the power of sin ineffective because it was conquered by Christ at Calvary. And if Jesus put an end to sin, then why would I ever return to try to keep the law to earn his grace? So look again at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 says, If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So when I receive Christ and I try to set aside the law, I tear it down, but then I try to rebuild it, I'm trying to escape becoming a sinner, but all I end up doing is sin more. See, guys, I try to be more right with God by keeping the law, but what I find is I'm actually less right with God because now I'm saying that his sacrifice in my be- on my behalf is not enough. And that is, if not more offensive, as offensive as breaking his law. So the law deepens our understanding of sin, whereas faith in Christ, because of his finished work, deadens the power of sin in our lives. Now, let's, we're moving fast, but look at verse 19 at the third concept here, at how faith, uh, or the law annihilates, but faith awakens. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. You can look at verse 19 again, and it's almost like Paul is saying, hey, Peter, the law is not a way of life. It's a way of death. The law kills us so that the gospel may raise us up again. The penalty for breaking the law of God uh, in just one area, let me just break it in one area, the penalty is death. And Paul says, I broke the law 
Therefore, the law condemned me to death. And so, church, the law doesn't give you life. The law simply annihilates life. But if Christ paid the penalty by fulfilling the law perfectly and dying in my place, uh, then that means that now when Christ died, I die. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 20. He says, when Christ died, I died. I've been crucified with him. Verse 20, Galatians 2.20, is perhaps one of the greatest summaries of the Christian life in all of Scripture. I try to think about Scripture. What one verse captures everything? captures the whole embodiment of the Christian faith. And I think Galatians 2.20 does it. John Eady said this on the screen. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. What wondrous words. I am so identified with him that his death, his death is my death. When he was crucified, I was crucified with him. I am so much one with him under law and in suffering and death that when he died to the law, I died to the law. Through this union with him, I satisfied the law, yielded to it the obedience which it claimed, suffered its curse, died to it, and am therefore now released from it, from its accusation and its penalty, and from its claim on me to obey it as the means of winning eternal life. You can go back and read it later, but in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains that we've been crucified with Christ. And uh, that means basically spiritually we're dead to sin, but we're now alive to Christ. The problem is, though, we're still physically alive. We're not dead yet. And so how do we live a sanctified life in a sinful body? And Romans 7 explains this. Um, Spurgeon used to say, dead men don't struggle. So if you've never struggled in your flesh, then you're not, I don't believe you're a believer. Every believer struggles in their flesh. There's a struggle. I call it the sinful struggle. And, and so I see some heads nodding in agreement. Romans 7, it should be the experience of every believer. It's not like, I wish this would happen. I wish we just get saved. We're justified, right? And then we just go to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? We just are translated. As soon as we uh, repent of our sin and trust in Christ, then boom, we're in heaven. That would be awesome. I would, I would love that. Um, but see, we have this, this, this kind of in-between justification and glorification. We call it sanctification. And so Romans 7 is a picture of that. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's nothing in the law I dislike. I love the law. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, in my body. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, I cannot attain this in my own. I can't do it myself. I need someone to rescue me. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul found that the law provided no remedy for sin, but it rather condemned him hopelessly, for no one can fulfill its requirements. You could say that the law exercised a double power because it both declared him a sinner and then condemned him for being one. I like what one person said about the law. They said the law wasn't designed to God, by God to save you, but to convict you. Religion says, and it doesn't matter what religion, this is the way. Walk in it faithfully and you'll be saved, happy, and fulfilled. But what if that's not true? What if it's all a lie? What if, like Paul, no matter how hard you try, you can't pull it off? What if we miss the reason for the law? You see, church, trying to keep the law as a means of salvation, trying to impress God with your works, will simply annihilate you. But see, faith awakens Paul says in verse 20, it is no longer I who live, that man was crucified. The old man in Adam was put to death. But now the man who's alive in Christ is living. And so by faith, I am regenerated to life. I'm born again by God's spirit. So to be saved by faith alone means you weren't saved because God saw something in you. And before time, he said, you know what? I'm going to pick the ones who would receive me. Let me go ahead. Like, pick them out. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cherry-pick the ones that I like and qualify. That qualifies them for salvation because they, they have the right heart. Man, I like them. They floss. I'm going to pick them. They're good-looking. I need them in my church. No. It's a sovereign act of his grace before time. Uh, he didn't know who would respond and who wouldn't, so that's why he picked those who would respond. That would mean he justified you because of your faith. Listen, church, we are not justified for our faith. We're justified by our faith. Amen? So Paul explains here, I've been crucified with Christ. That old Paul is dead. And he, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
And this is what empowers me to live the Christian life. Listen, it's not do better, try harder. Man, that was a good message. I got to try harder. I've just got to, I got to do these things to please God and, and earn his favor. It, that, that all flows out of a life, um, not of dead works, but of active faith. That's how we're to accomplish uh, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is a life of, of, of Christ flowing through us, not a life of dead works trying to earn his favor. And so this fourth section shows us how. Look at verse, the second half of verse 20. He says, in the life I now live, so that means post-justification, the life I now live in the flesh, by the way, that's your body, the life I live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, verse 21 is often overlooked. It's one of those verses that because verse 20 is so impacting and so tattoo-worthy um, that we forget verse 21. And verse 21 is one of those aha verses. It's an impacting verse. Look at it with me. You could maybe consider verse 21 for your future tattoo, but um, here's what it says. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Nullify, to render of no effect. I don't make it ineffective. I don't empty it. For if righteousness were through the law, here's a statement, that Christ died for no purpose. Now note with me again in verse 20, Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by faith. Here's what he means. In other words, the Savior didn't die for me so I could just keep on living the same way before I was made new. That child of Adam had been crucified and buried, but this new child, the child of God, is now alive abundantly. So my life now is lived, according to Paul, in complete dependence, in complete reliance upon Christ, who's now living within me. He loved me, he gave himself for me, so now everything I do is Christ. So, so all of my worth, church, all of my meaning, all of my purpose, all of my strength is tied to Jesus Christ. So I don't walk by sight. You don't walk by feelings, by emotion, neither by intellect, by reason, by energy, by fitness, by ambition, by striving, by effort, by attitude, by accomplishments, by self-motivation or self-esteem or self-anything, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the true creed of the Christian. I walk by faith in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now notice that verse 21 um, says that if righteousness were possible by keeping the law, if this were even possible, then what Christ did on the cross was really pointless. It, it, was, it was nullified. The grace of God is nullified, and Christ died for no purpose. So listen, to try to be justified by keeping the law actually empties the cross of its power. It's to say to the blood of Christ, you're not necessary. It's to trample it underfoot. But see, by living by faith, this empowers us to receive the grace of God. Well, let me put it to you this way on the screen. Before Christ, we were alive or we really were dead in our transgressions and sins. We thought we were alive and we were living these good works, but these were really dead works. But see, what this means now because of the cross is that what are dead are my works and what is now alive are his works. Uh, my thoughts are now dead. So if we, and this is a little morbid, but if we had a dead body and we were wondering, what is that person thinking right now? They're not thinking anything. They're a corpse. They passed away. And so there are no thoughts. Those thoughts, my thoughts are dead. Now Christ's thoughts are alive in me. My righteousness is dead, but his righteousness is alive in me. My efforts to please him are dead. It's now the effort that Christ affords me by the power of the Spirit. My desires are dead. His desires are alive. That means that he works in me, his desires. And then I can look at the Psalms and say that he gives me um, according to the desires of my heart. Well, those desires are his desires now. So I'm not living for myself. I'm not praying things and just tacking on in Jesus' name. I'm praying what Jesus would pray. They're his desires. My life is now dead, Paul says, but now his life is alive in me. Now, Jesus died to sin. So believer, you are now dead to sin. And you don't seem fully convinced this morning. I know we know this theologically, right? But Jesus rose again, and that means, believer, you're now risen with Christ. Jesus has power over the death and grave and fear and temptation, and so do you. You've been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live. And, and so this should empower us 
to live lives that are set apart for his glory. And what naturally comes after is that we begin to desire to obey his commands. This is the crazy part of this, is that every believer, every true, genuine convert begins to see the work that Christ has done and they begin to desire to do good works. So their life actually becomes transformed. They're not saved by good works, but they're saved under good works. They begin to desire to live for him. And so they're not obeying his commands to earn his favor because they've already received it. But now they're living their life to submit to him and to please him. And so if we could be justified, made right with God by keeping the law, Paul says, then Christ died for no reason. There's no purpose in it. And so the law empties the cross of its power, but faith empowers us to live a cross-centered life victoriously. Now, I want to apply this passage of Scripture, and to do that, we actually are going to turn to another passage of Scripture. A lot of times, application are just like points that I make out of the text. Today, we actually are going to turn to a totally different passage of Scripture to apply this section. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5, okay? If you have your Scripture journals, just pause those there and grab a Bible. You can swipe on your phone, ESV app, Bible app. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I think it's important that we apply this because this is, again, the centerpiece of the Reformation. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And this should be very easy to apply. Romans chapter 5 gives us the application in the first five verses. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. I had you turn there. It's going to be on the screen too. I teased you. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Okay, therefore, because of that, If you listen to the sermon today, here's the therefore. Because of that, he has four big ideas. So note with me, number one, he says, since we've been justified by faith, number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means we will experience peace with God. That is a statement that I can say this morning with great faith and with great joy. This morning, church, the war is over. That should make you uh, overflow with excitement. No more enmity between you and God. Okay, listen, that means you can lay to rest this morning all of the self-justifying that you have been laboring to maintain your entire life. Hasn't that been exhausting? You just are self-justifying. You can lay that weapon down, my friend, this morning. You can lay it down. So many people are trying to justify themselves. They try to justify their existence. It may sound something like this. You know, if I could just make this much pay, then that would justify all the schooling that I've gone through. Or you know what? If I buy my kids happiness, then it'll justify the awful divorce that their dad and I have put them through. Or, you know, if my work is successful and my kids are happy, then that kind of justifies why I'm even here and I won't consider taking my life. But see, the self-justifying only produces enmity with God. Because we realize I can do nothing to earn his forgiveness. I try to justify, well, I'm not as bad as all these other sinners out there. I try to, well, you know, if they were in my situation, they would, God gets it, he understands, and we self-justify, but there's nothing we can do to earn his forgiveness. We dismiss repentance and we redefine sin, but even when we do that, that does not alleviate this deepening and deafening sense of guilt and despair within our souls. And so this morning, outwardly, you may look like you have peace, but inwardly, there's a turmoil. There's a lack of shalom. And yet when we lay the self-justifying down and we kind of wave the white flag and say, okay, God, I realize this morning I cannot be justified by my outward works. I have to receive the finished work of Christ on my behalf. Then that means the war is now over and you can experience true spiritual peace that no circumstance could ever grant you. There is a peace that reaches down into the very soul level. It's not just outward. Jesus said, you know, the world gives peace, but I don't give as the world gives. The peace that the world gives says, hey, let's stop fighting, lay the weapons down, absence of conflict. Jesus says, that's not the peace I give. Uh, I give peace even in the midst of conflict, even when there's war. He says, I I will give you true peace. Here's what uh, Pastor Timothy Keller said. He said, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say this morning, you can nod your head if you agree, that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe. 
but we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. He goes on to say this. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. Listen, this morning, to have peace with God means no more restless nights wondering if your sins will find you out. No more anxiety over condemnation. No more fear or concern that you may not be good enough to go to heaven. Am I going to be good enough? I don't know. Listen, no, you aren't. (laughs) But you're not graded on your righteousness. You're graded on Christ's righteousness. And because we're justified, he says we, number one, have peace with God. Now look at verse 2, our second application point. He says, because we've been, right, uh, we've been justified by faith. Secondly, verse 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So secondly, because we've been justified, number two, we can stand firm in the grace of God. You heard it this morning from Pastor Micah. Uh, grace is, is love that, that serves. It's love applied. It's love that's offered. Uh, someone else. So to stand firm in the grace of God means to not waver in doubt or confusion. It's to no, no longer have the suspicion that God's wrath still hangs over you and that by making one more mistake, this massive creditor is going to come after me to demand payment. Now I can rest today in the grace. Just stand firm in the grace of God, not on shaky ground based on my own righteousness. There's a story told of a, of a wealthy Englishman who purchased a Rolls Royce. I've been thinking of doing that, but uh, just going to drive my Nissan and be happy with life. And so this Englishman buys a Rolls Royce and took his car to France. Love this story. It had been advertised as the car of all cars, never needing a mechanic. It's a problem-free automobile. And so this man was excited. He bought the car, drove it to France, and then it broke down. (laughs) So he called Rolls Royce. And they flew a mechanic from England to France the next day. And the mechanic fixed the car immediately. So, you know, the owner thought, this is going to be an expensive bill. And so he was waiting for the bill, waiting for the bill. Finally, he emails Rolls-Royce and he goes, hey, I know there's a big bill. Just send it to me. I'll pay it. Well, to his surprise, the next day he got an email back from Rolls-Royce that said, I'm sorry, sir, we have no record of anything ever going wrong with your vehicle. (laughs) So to his surprise, the bill was clean. And that's really what happens to someone who believes the gospel, right? You receive the forgiveness and righteousness of Christ, and God looks at you and says, hey, I have absolutely no record of sin in your life. So we praise God for his grace. We can stand firm because we're not hoping that our righteous deeds will save us. We can rest today and stand firm in his grace. Thirdly, according to Romans 5, Because we've been justified by faith, number three, we can rejoice in hope as we glorify God. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I believe that Christians are the only people on the planet who can truly rejoice in hope. When we see hope in the New Testament, that is not wishful thinking like, oh man, I hope I get the job. Man, I hope that Pastor Pilgrim will go short today. Man, I hope that I'm justified. No, that's not the idea. Biblical hope is an expectation. So knowing that I've been given an alien righteousness, what does that do? That disables any pride that I have in my accomplishments. I'll just be honest, church. I want people to notice my righteousness. I want people to see it. We were talking about this a few weeks ago. Pastor Chuck Smith used to be seen in the parking lot before church picking up cigarettes, and and, and he would pick up trash, and he'd throw it away. And a few years ago, like everyone was like, oh, that's so cool. The pastor is picking up you know, uh, refuse in the, in the parking lot. How awesome is that? He's such a great example. And so, you know, I heard that. So a few years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to get to the church early and I'm going to go pick up stuff in the parking lot. Problem was nobody noticed. <laughs> I was looking around like, does anyone see a good pastor? No, see, I want to, I want people to see my righteousness. And so do you. But see, when we realize that apart from Christ, there's only condemnation. Then in heaven, we can't look at one another and say, why are you here? Because I know why I'm here. I did it. I made it. I pulled myself up and achieved it. 
No, we can all together look at one another and say, none of us deserve to be here, especially you. But I'm so thankful that you're here that I'm here. The one thing every Christian in heaven can declare other than Jesus as Lord is that we don't deserve this. But the one thing everyone will say in eternity being condemned is, I did deserve this. St. Francis de Sales said this. He said, some men become proud and insolent because they ride a fine horse, they wear a feather in their hat, or are dressed in a fine suit of clothes. Who does not see the folly of this? If there be any glory in such things, the glory belongs to the horse, the bird, and the tailor. You and I can boast in Christ and Christ alone. And so the glory of the Christ follower is not in how we keep the law. No, it's in Christ. And so we can glorify God and we can rejoice in hope because it is a certainty. It's a certainty. We rejoice in hope. My son Aiden and I recently flew to New York. And uh, one thing I always do when I, when I travel is, A, I fly. So I don't drive for 12 hours to get somewhere. Um, but when I do fly, I always buy a ticket in advance. I don't fly standby. And when I buy my ticket, I notice that my posture is different than the people who fly standby. We were flying back from New York, and we were at, um, we were at the airport, and we are kind of waiting. And it was about two or three hours before the flight, and we're at the terminal. And um, Aiden and I are sitting there, and I look down at both of our tickets, and we know our seat number. And we know the boarding time, and so we're just kind of relaxed. But then I look around, I notice that there's some people flying standby. What that means is that the airline will often um, realize that people are no-shows, and so if you show up and hope that no one, like the whole flight isn't full, maybe you'll get a chance to fly standby, but it really comes down to the last minute. And, and it's not an, an expectation of hope, it's a maybe. And, and so I just noticed our posture was different. We were relaxed, we were reading, we were watching YouTube videos, maybe of Star Wars Episode Nine trailers. I don't know. Don't hold me to it. But we're watching these things, and we're just relaxed and enjoying the time. Whereas the people around us on standby, they're pacing, they're biting their nails, and they're watching the monitor, and every announcement they're listening, like, am I going to get on? And let me just be frank. Some of us are living our Christian life as if we're not truly justified. And we're not sure if we're saved, and we waffle back and forth. Well, I'm not sure today if I have assurance of salvation. Rather than resting in the uh, rejoicing in hope and having that true peace. So finally, number four, this morning, because we're justified by faith, number four, he says we trust Christ for daily life. Here's what he says in verse 3 through 5. He says not only that, we rejoice not just in hope but in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, church, we can trust Christ for daily life, even in trials. You and I have been crucified with Christ, so in the midst of difficulty, according to Paul, because we've been justified, we can keep dying to self and keep allowing the life of Christ to be manifested in our mortal bodies, even through difficulty. I would say especially in difficulty. So when we suffer, he says, you're going to endure. And when you endure, that produces character that people look at and they go, wow, that's great character. And that character eventually produces hope, continually gives us hope. And then in the day-to-day, -day, we can rest in the hope that Christ is with us and that we are in him. So knowing that we're justified by faith, just to recap, it allows us to experience peace with God. It allows us to stand firm in his grace, to rejoice in hope, and to walk through trials with joy. Because listen, those trials are not, as many people used to believe, that the gods are against us, but no, they actually show us that God is for us and that God is with us. So as we close this morning, I want to invite our worship team forward. And I thought maybe this illustration would help because there's so many different facets of this for us to wrap our head around justification by faith. This one really helped me. There's an illustration that talks about a man with his daughter who is taking AP English. I love this story. His daughter's name was Robin, and she was a regular English student, but her parents had talked her into taking AP English. And so she began to struggle with AP English. It was about two days in. <laughs> two days in, she's like, I can't do this. I can't hang with the AP students. And it's just difficult. And so she told her dad on the third day, Dad, I'm going to drop out of AP English. It's way too hard. And so her dad said, well, let's just go talk to the teacher. So he brings his daughter Robin in, and they go to talk to the teacher. 
she explains that, you know, it's just too hard. I can't do this. I can't hang in there. And the, the teacher says, you know what, Robin? I really want you in my class. I think you can do it. Would it make a difference if I told you that I'm just going to go ahead and write in the letter A for your grade today? I'm just going to go ahead and give you an A. Would that make a difference if you knew that you already earned an A? And Robin began to cry and said, are you serious? And the teacher said, I'm absolutely serious. She opened her grade book right in front of her. She takes the pen to her name, Robin, and she writes A. And after that, the teacher looked at her and she said, okay, Robin, go along to class now. Learn and enjoy. And I wonder this morning if you and I would understand the Christian life, if we'd maybe view it a little bit differently, if we realize this morning that because we re repented and trusted Christ, because of his finished work, we already have the A. And so we wouldn't say, Lord, I've just got to keep my efforts going to please you and to maybe pass. And man, if I'm really lucky, I'll get a tutor who will bring me that A. Now, see, Paul said in Romans 6.14, you're not under law, you're under grace. You're no longer under the grading system, but the gracing system. With the cross, God declares, you've got the A. And so may we work from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. In the midst of my trials and my treasures, my calamity as well as my charms, this morning, I can remember that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But see, Christ lives in me. And so the life that I now live from this moment on, it's just simply by faith. It's relying on him for my everything. I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. As we just saying, there's no other mediator between God and man. You can't mediate yourself or for someone else. Only Christ can stand in my place, take the punishment that I deserve, hear the Father declare him condemned so that I could hear him declare me righteous. Many people believe that this hymn was attributed to John Bunyan, but it's actually, according to Spurgeon, a man by the name of John Barrage. So if you just bow your heads with me, I wanna just quote this hymn before we close in prayer. John Barrage sang these, and these words are slightly adapted. Here's what he said. The law provokes men oft to ill, and churlish hearts makes harder still. But gospel acts a kindly part and melts a most obdurate heart. Run, John, run, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Such needful wings, O Lord, impart to brace my feet and brace my heart. Good wings of faith and wings that show will make the cripple rise and go. With these a lumpish soul may fly and soar aloft and reach the sky nor faint nor faulted in the race, but cheerly work and sing of grace. I'm gonna pray this morning while we're seated, Valley of Vision prayer called the Mediator. And when I say amen, we'll stand and worship together. So here's the prayer. Everlasting Creator Father, I bless thee for thy everlasting covenant, for the appointment of a mediator. I rejoice that he failed not, nor was discouraged, but he accomplished the work that thou gavest him to do. And he said on the cross, it is finished. I exult in the thought that thy justice is satisfied, thy truth established, thy law magnified, and a foundation is laid for my hope. I look to a present and personal interest in Christ and say, surely he has borne my griefs, carried my sorrows, won my peace, and healed my soul. Justified by his blood, I am saved by his life. Glorying in his cross, I bow to his scepter. Having his spirit, I possess his mind. Lord, grant that my devotion may not be occasional and partial, but universal, influential, effective. And may I always continue in thy words as well as thy works so that I may reach my end in peace. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. You're the one mediator, Jesus, between man and God. And we thank you for the penalty that you took on our behalf that we deserved. We thank you that you didn't treat us as our sins deserved, but Lord, you bore the wrath of God, the curse in your body on the tree. And Lord, you rose again triumphantly. And so this morning we can stand together and glorify God 
for justifying us by faith. We pray for anyone here today who does not yet know Jesus, that they would receive Christ as Lord and Savior. They would turn from their sin, repent, and trust Christ. And Lord, for the believer, that we'd continue to rest, not in our own works, but in the finished work of Christ who said, it is finished. We worship you, we glory in you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, God's people together said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.